Tennessee lawmakers expelled two black legislators who took part in a gun control protest on the floor of the state house, but vote to keep a white lawmaker. It's Friday, April 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the White House says decisions made by the Trump administration hamstrung President Biden when pulling U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. It is undeniable that decisions made and the lack of planning done by the previous administration significantly limited options available to him. Also this hour, we go to Lowell, where a new program is trying to draw students of color toward careers in teaching. You can't be what you can't see, so they think that the role of a teacher is not for them. They've had only white teachers teaching them white history. And the 75th anniversary of the World Health Organization. In sports, Bruins win, partly sunny, windy, and in the 50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Tennessee State House of Representatives has voted to expel two Democrats. The Republican-dominated chamber forced out Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, both black men. Crowds in the Tennessee House gallery jeered as Pearson was expelled. Pursuant to Article 2, Section 12 of the Constitution of the State of Tennessee, I hereby declare Representative Justin J. Pearson of the 86th Representative District expelled from the House of Representatives of the 103rd General Assembly of the State of Tennessee. A third Democrat, a white woman, escaped expulsion by one vote. GOP lawmakers are angry at the trio-led chants calling for gun control in the House chamber. But the expulsions may not last. Local county authorities could reappoint the two lawmakers to their seats, and the men could run again in the next election. For the second time in his presidency, President Biden has used his veto power. NPR's Nathan Rott reports the move blocks a Republican-led attempt to derail the Biden administration's hallmark water rule. This fight over the scope of the Clean Water Act has been ongoing for decades. At question is which waterways in the U.S. the environmental law actually protects. Different administrations have had different interpretations. Congressional Republicans say the Biden administration's current interpretation is too restrictive for business and agriculture. They approved a resolution last week aimed at nullifying Biden's water rule. His veto ends that immediate attempt, but the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to rule on federal water protections later this year. Nathan Rott, NPR News. The Biden administration is proposing a rule intended to stop sweeping bans on transgender school athletes who want to join teams aligning with their gender identity. The administration is relying on Title IX, the federal rule outlawing sex-based discrimination in education. But the administration proposal would give schools some leeway to ban transgender athletes, depending on age and the sport. Violence is widening on multiple fronts in the Middle East. Israeli emergency services say at least two women were killed in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, and Israel's military struck targets in Lebanon and Gaza today. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. Israel's military carried out limited strikes on Palestinian militant targets in Lebanon and Gaza after rocket fire from both the day before. Gaza militants fired back with rockets. No one was killed in these latest strikes, and Israel is signaling it's not responding further. Military spokesman Richard Hecht. Nobody wants an escalation right now. Quiet will be answered with quiet at this stage. But violence is erupting elsewhere. Israeli authorities reported a fatal shooting attack targeting an Israeli car on a road in the West Bank's Jordan Valley. An Israeli police clashed with Palestinians at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in Jerusalem, where worshippers are attending Friday Ramadan prayers. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. You're listening to NPR. 
House Republicans have subpoenaed a former New York City prosecutor who had helped lead a criminal investigation of former President Donald Trump. The House Judiciary Committee subpoenaed Mark Pomerantz. He had previously refused to testify, citing the current investigation. Trump was indicted this week on 34 charges of fraud. The Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg says the House Republicans are trying to undermine a New York investigation. There's a three-way tie at the top of a high-profile leaderboard at the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta, Georgia. From member station WABE, Alex Helmick reports players are bracing for possible heavy rain throughout round two today. Currently, Victor Hovland and John Rahm top the leaderboard at seven under par. Brooks Kepka is there, too. He's a four-time major winner who bolted the PGA to play in the controversial Saudi-backed breakaway league Live. He's the only live golfer so far in the top 10. After today, the field will be reduced to the top 50. Tiger Woods will have to make some moves. The five-time Masters champ is currently tied for 54th place at two over par. There's still a lot of golf left, and with bad weather expected all weekend, things are likely to change dramatically on the leaderboard. For NPR News, I'm Alex Helmick. Next hour, the U.S. Labor Department will release its latest monthly reports on jobs. Forecasters don't think employers created as many new jobs in March as they did in February. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A former Methuen city councilor who was also a police officer has pleaded not guilty to corruption charges. Sean Fountain is charged with conspiracy and forgery. Investigators say Fountain faked documents to make it seem like he was qualified to be a police officer. The charges stem from an investigation into conspiracy within Methuen's police department. Massachusetts residents who depend on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, will get a little extra from the state starting today. Massachusetts is supplementing the payments after additional federal pandemic-era benefits expired. As WBUR's Fausto Menard reports, that federal money ended last month. More than 650,000 households will get at least $38 extra per month. That's less than the extra $95 or more recipients got monthly from the federal government. Brittany Mangini is with the State Department of Transitional Assistance. It's certainly a cushion, and it'll allow them to maximize their household budgets to the fullest extent possible to address the increased costs in food. The extra state payments end in June. Kate Adams with the Greater Boston Food Bank worries what will happen then. Unfortunately, in just a few months when these benefits come to an end, Many people are going to have the rug pulled out from underneath them. Adam says one in three state residents experienced food insecurity in 2021. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Air pollution may increase a person's risk for dementia. That's according to new research out of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Mark Weisskopf is the study's lead author. He says the number of people potentially affected is huge. Everybody is potentially exposed. I mean, we all have to breathe and everybody is being exposed to some level of a pollutant. And so as far as we can tell, dropping it at all will, you know, reduce risk for anybody who's experiencing it at any level. Weisskopf says more than 57 million people in the world have dementia, and that number is expected to nearly triple by 2050. 
Nearly half of Boston police officers who've voluntarily resigned from the department have taken jobs with the city's fire department. Data reviewed by the Boston Globe show about 50 officers have resigned in the last five years, with the number increasing sharply last year. Many cited the reasons for leaving as personal or family reasons. It's 708. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. The Bruins beat the Toronto Maple Leafs 2-1 to one in overtime last night at the Garden. In men's college hockey, BU lost to Minnesota 6-2 to two in the national championship semifinals. And tonight at the Garden, the Celtics host the Toronto Raptors. In your forecast, partly sunny today and in the mid-50s, it'll be windy, which has prompted the National Weather Service to issue a red flag warning for potential wildfires starting this afternoon. Cloudy overnight with temperatures around freezing, mostly sunny tomorrow and near 50, sunny on Sunday and in the lower 50s. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 709. WBUR supporters include the Pew Charitable Trusts, telling stories behind data and trends that shape our world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. In an unprecedented decision that's captured the nation's attention, Tennessee's Republican-controlled House voted to expel two lawmakers. The two Democrats participated in a gun control protest on the House floor. They were responding to a school shooting in Tennessee that killed three children and three adults. And then they were thrown out. A third Democrat, Gloria Johnson, also joined the protests but gets to keep her job. It might have to do with the color of our skin. Johnson is white, while the two lawmakers expelled were black. One is Justin Pearson. The other is Justin Jones, who said this. What we see today is a lynch mob assembled to not lynch me, but our democratic process. After the expulsions, protesters chanted, shame on you to the Republicans. For more, we're joined by WPLN political reporter Blaze Ganey. He joins us from Nashville. Good morning, Blaze. Morning. So let's start with how it got to this point. Three Democratic lawmakers went to the podium, used to present bills in the middle of session to speak about the need to address gun control. This was days after six lives were taken by a school shooter wielding two assault rifles and a pistol. Uh, They said that they were only doing this after their microphone had been cut off when trying to acknowledge the thousands of protesters asking for gun control legislation at the Capitol that day. And so ultimately they broke a rule of decorum in the House, right? Correct. So what I'm trying to understand is how unprecedented this is. Other than just after the Civil War, only two lawmakers have ever been expelled, and that was over possibly criminal behavior, one convicted of bribery, the other accused of sexual misconduct. So what is the GOP in Tennessee, what message are they sending by expelling these two members over breaking a rule? The House Speaker Cameron Sexton says he didn't want the actions of the lawmakers to be taken lightly. He thought it set a bad precedent. He felt that expulsion was the right punishment. But Mm. several worry it could set a bad precedent, actually, to expel the lawmakers over breaking a House rule and not something more serious as sexual assault or bribery. And what has the public's reaction been to these expulsions? 
they've been upset. The ones physically at the Capitol and the ones that I've seen commenting online. Every now and then you'll find a commenter that does feel the three deserve to be expelled, but it doesn't nearly match the several tweets and emails I've gotten claiming otherwise. I've also seen several pointing out that the only two that were expelled were black men under 30 who were outspoken about their dissent of certain bills that come up during session. What happens next for these members who've been expelled? Well, the two lawmakers expelled come from Democratic-leaning counties, and that could mean they'll be back in their seat before the end of the month. On Monday, Nashville's Metro Council is going to vote to seat a representative for the empty seat left by Jones, and several members on that council have already said they choose Jones. While I haven't heard what county commissioners in Shelby County, where Memphis lies, expects to do, I get the sense they do the same for Justin Pearson. WPLN political reporter Blaze Ganey. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Here's a question. Did the U.S. job market cool off a bit last month? We get a temperature check this morning when the Labor Department reports on job gains for March. Forecasters think employers added fewer jobs last month than the big month in February. NPR's Scott Horsley is following along. Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Why would forecasters think that job growth is tapering off a bit? Well, there have been a number of clues to that. Uh, Job openings were down at the beginning of March. Uh, Industry surveys point to slower hiring in the services sector, uh, maybe even outright job cuts in manufacturing. Neela Richardson is chief economist at the payroll processing company ADP. She says some slowdown would not be surprising at this point. After all, the economy's already added well over 12 million jobs in the last couple of years. Given where we are in the jobs recovery, you would expect to see a lessening of job gains. I think the story is, yes, we're finally seeing that downshift. Keep in mind, the Federal Reserve has been trying to tap the brakes on the economy by raising interest rates as it tries to control inflation. For most of the last year, the job market kind of shrugged off those rising interest rates. But March could be the month when the economic speed bumps start to have an impact. Okay, so two different things going on here. One, just it's been a long period of job growth, and so it would naturally taper off. The other is the Fed's action to slow job growth. Why do they want to do that? It seems a lot, right? Most people think more jobs, the better. But the central bank has been worried that the job market is out of balance. That is, there's more demand for workers than there are workers to fill the open jobs. And as a result, employers have been having to bid up wages. Now, of course, good uh, higher wages is good for workers, uh, but higher wages also has the potential to push up prices, especially in labor-intensive service industries like restaurants and auto repair shops. So one way to restore the balance would be to have more workers come into the job market. We have seen some of that. But Wells Fargo economist Sarah House says that Fed officials would also welcome some slowdown in hiring. It's uncomfortable when we see the labor market weaken, but given how vexing inflation has been over the past two years, if we want to get inflation under control, some softening in the labor market is necessary. Wage gains have been slowing in recent months, and the Fed would like to see them slow more. Uh, Average wages in February were 4.6% higher than a year ago, and forecasters expect today's report will show a somewhat smaller annual increase in March. Did the very public bank failures in March affect the job market at all? 
it, it probably won't show up in today's report. This reflects conditions in the middle of the month, just around the time those bank failures took place. Uh, but it's likely that we'll see some impact in the months to come. You know, Since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, other banks have gotten stingier about making loans. That makes it harder and more expensive for businesses to borrow money. And as time goes on, House thinks it'll also be an, address, an additional drag on hiring. Overall, you're going to see lenders get a little bit more conservative. We think it's going to contribute to a moderation in, in payroll growth in the coming months. And probably by the end of this year, looking at some outright job losses. Some forecasters warn that tighter credit increases the risk that the economy tips into recession. And, of course, if employers are worried about a recession, that's another reason they might be cautious about bringing on new workers. NPR's Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. The Biden administration has released some details of its $15 billion response to drought in the Colorado River Basin. Yesterday in Arizona, the administration called it the largest investment in climate resilience in the nation's history. But new projects alone won't solve the crisis on the shrinking river. That will require sacrifice. From the California-Arizona border, NPR's Kirk Sigler reports on farmers who are facing water cutbacks for the first time in history. For almost 100 years, Amanda Brooks' family has relied on the Colorado River near Yuma, Arizona to transform this harsh brown desert into lush fields of green, growing abundant lettuce, spinach, kale, broccoli, and celery. This is where 90% of all the nation's winter produce is grown. Today it's the end of the celery harvest. The old leaves and stalks crackle as we walk toward the edge of a field, which is also the edge of the state. Yeah, so that levee is California. And right between us and the middle of that levee is the main channel of the Colorado River. Brooks has watched with alarm as the river has shrunk in the last two decades. But until recently, it's mostly been business as usual across the seven states that rely on it. Farmers in Yuma are luckier in that they have senior water rights and aren't seeing their river water cut like in other parts of Arizona. But Brooks feels like her day is coming soon. We would love to be able to farm using all the water that we have now, but we know there's not enough water to go around. And Yuma farmers are willing to help um, save the river where we can. Yuma farmers say they're willing to leave water in the river to pause planting some of their land in exchange for money. And the latest plan the administration and its Bureau of Reclamation announced this week does include hundreds of millions of federal dollars to do that. Yesterday in Phoenix, White House advisor Mitch Landrieu, the former mayor of New Orleans, told reporters that the 40 million people who rely on the Colorado River can be assured the administration has their backs. We have a 23-year drought in this country. That is not going to be fixed by a deluge of rain every now and then. We have to reorganize ourselves. We have to come up with new and innovative ways to deal with that. Well, the West is coming off a wet winter, but it will do little to address the long-term drought. And this latest batch of federal funding won't be enough to keep the nation's two largest reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, from reaching Deadpool, the point at which they're too empty to generate hydropower. Paul Brierley, who runs the Yuma Center for Desert Agriculture, is encouraged that Washington is finally taking this seriously. You know, another way to look at it, we have a lot of natural disasters in the east, right, that are hurricanes and floods and tornadoes. This is, this is basically a slow-moving natural disaster. The scientists at this center have helped local farmers like Amanda Brooks double their yields in recent years while cutting their water use by about 20%. This is celery that's already been harvested, and you can see they take almost everything out of there. It's, it's Brooks says impressive. it's hard to plan what to plant for next year with so many unknowns still. 
You can make larger water cuts someplace else and not hurt the food supply like you would here in Yuma. It's not yet clear whether farmers here will get federal payments to not use some river water or whether those will even be enough to keep them in the black. It's almost unfathomable to think that the river could get to Deadpool. I mean, we've got to make some decisions and and the Bureau's got to take some action so that we don't get to Deadpool. The Bureau of Reclamation that controls water here in the West says it will announce a bigger picture plan next week for preventing Deadpool. In Yuma, this cloud of uncertainty is hanging over the annual county fair that's going on this week. A Journey cover band is warming up the crowd on opening night. Fairgoers are noshing on ears of roasted corn, green chili pork, and tortilla dogs. It's very healthy. (laughs) Southwest farming towns like this are proud of their agricultural heritage. Their future depends on the river. Um, A lot of people think Yuma is just a desert area, you know. We are the winter vegetable capital of the world, I guess. Drew Hughes is over in a noisy dairy barn helping kids show their calves. Some of the farming communities, they are worried about the water coming up for next year. So with this season, it was a pretty good season, but it's going to be rough. Rough, he says, as food prices here and everywhere else will only go higher. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Yuma, Arizona. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new program in Lowell is trying to encourage students who have never had a teacher who looks like them to consider teaching careers. And in 30 minutes, we mark 75 years since the creation of the World Health Organization. Right now, it's 721. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Populism is a defining political current in the United States. Resentment is at the heart of this populist drive. And around the world. Populism unifies the people by negativity. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Listen to On Point, Power of Populism, its global reach, authoritarian danger, and democratic promise. Our week-long exploration begins Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Partly sunny today with a high near 56. It'll be pretty windy. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall to a low around 30. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 48. Sunny on Sunday with a high near 52. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston at 722. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Nearly 9 out of 10 Massachusetts teachers are white, but 4 out of 10 public school students are people of color. That means many students don't see themselves reflected in their teachers. They may not even think of teaching as a future career. As WBUR's Samuela Petrocelli reports, a new partnership in Lowell hopes to change that. 18 high school seniors settle in for Kendra Bauer's English class. She asks them a question before they dig into today's lesson. Hey guys, raise your hand if you want to teach high school. Raise your hand if you want to teach at all. Right, so we've got like two shaking hands and one hand up (laughs) Um, in a class full of seniors who are thinking about what they want to do when they grow up. Bauer has taught at Lowell High for over 16 years. The district is the sixth largest in the state. Its students are among the most diverse, with a strong Hispanic, Asian, and Black population. Yet many of those students rarely see a teacher who looks like them. That makes Elizabeth Zahn, an Asian-American junior at Lowell High, pause and think. Going down the roster right now, all of my teachers are white. And um, actually, that's kind of crazy. Sorry. Yeah, all of my teachers are white, including any staff and support that I know of. District officials say 7 out of 10 Asian students in Lowell Public Schools did not have a single teacher of the same race during the 2020-21 school year. That gap was similar for Hispanic and Black students. Lowell is not an outlier. According to state data, over 90% of Massachusetts teachers are white, though students of color make up roughly 44% of the state's enrollment. Bauer, who is white, fears this might repel students from the career. You can't be what you can't see. So they think that the role of a teacher is not for them. They've had only white teachers teaching them white history from the very beginning. And so it's almost like they don't see that as a career path. Research says when students of color have a teacher with their race or gender, they feel more cared for, they put more personal attention on school, and have stronger post-graduation plans. That's why district educators teamed up with the University of Massachusetts Lowell. They hope to push more students on track towards a career in education. The Grow Your Own Partnership offers college credit and potential scholarships to high school participants. This is the program's first year at Lowell High. In the fall, 13 students taught in elementary classrooms. They read to students and developed lesson plans. Zahn had the chance to lead a first grade class at Bailey Elementary School as a student teacher. One student looked a little familiar. She had the same little outfits that I used to wear with like the white tights and like the little pigtails. And so I kind of saw myself in her as a student. So I would hope she saw herself in me, I guess. One of the program's goals is to encourage students of color to return to their communities as educators. It also offers a course where they learn how teachers can create an inclusive classroom. Lorena Minikowski is also a junior at Lowell High School but she wasn't always interested in teaching. Her mom runs a daycare at home. Literally just because I would like wake up in the morning and I would just like hear kids crying. Her perspective changed after she got a summer job at McAvenue Elementary School and joined the education pathway last fall. One of her kindergarten students only spoke Portuguese, so Minikowski, who is Brazilian, spoke to him in their home language. So it wasn't like he was like being separated from the rest of his class. He was like being included in the same activity as us. He wasn't being separated with like other students. And the few teachers of color in Lowell notice how students appreciate their presence. Ralph St. Louis is Haitian American and teaches biology. 
Students do a double take when they see him in the hallway. I've stood outside of my class and I've had um, students like stop and like stare and be like, are you a teacher here? Like, yeah. <laughs> what do you teach here? Biology. Like, really? And I'm like, yeah, this is my class. They rarely see a black science teacher and he makes strong connections with them. His students try and chat with him in the hallway during an interview. Naya, do you see me in a conversation? Sorry. Oh, you're recording? Yeah. I'll see you later, Naya. By the end of the year, we like really developed these really um, supportive teacher-student relationships, and like they continued to like follow up with me year after year. And I was like, wow, this is something that really they needed. The education pathway is new, but there is strong participation among students of color. And on Beacon Hill, the Educator Diversity Act could create an alternate path to become a certified teacher and bypass what some advocates call significant barriers to entry. Hi, guys. How you doing? Lowell High English teacher Kendra Bauer urges her students to consider being the teacher they never had. I have many students that have not had teachers who match their, their ethnicity or their race. And so I say, so why not you? Imagine how people, how students would, how, imagine how you would have loved to have you. The pathway might just be the push some students need to dream of becoming teachers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samuela Petricelli. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up here on Morning Edition, the Biden administration has acknowledged that the U.S. did not withdraw its forces from Afghanistan soon enough. It blames the Trump administration for the delay. And in one hour, UMass Amherst economics professor Aaron Dubay discusses how increasing wages are affecting the job market. It's 729. A quick reminder, the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the new WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. And the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open. WorcesterArt.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Luis Schiavone. Top-secret Pentagon documents offering details on Ukraine's military and the state of the war have been published on social media platforms Twitter and Telegram. The Pentagon says it is investigating. NPR's Greg Myrie has these details about what people are seeing. Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh said, quote, we are aware of the reports on social media and the department is reviewing the matter. Now, Military analysts uh, we've been in contact with say the documents do appear genuine, but it also looks like they may have been altered. Just one example, one chart puts the Ukrainian death toll at around 71,000, but the Russian toll is listed as 17,000. There's no indication that Ukrainian battle plans were revealed in the documents. The British Defense Ministry says that Russian troops have regained some momentum in the battle for Ukrainian town Bakhmut after weeks of 
advances. Willem Marx reports from London. A tweeted intelligence update from the UK Armed Forces said Russian troops were now, quote, highly likely to advance into Bakhmut center after weeks of little to no movement. The Post said Russian troops were using more effective artillery and with the Kremlin having seized the west bank of the Bakhmutka River, Ukraine's supply lines would likely be, quote, severely threatened. One hour from now, the Labor Department releases its jobs update for March. Analysts forecast the figure will show fewer jobs last month. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Legal betting won't be allowed on this year's Boston Marathon. The state's gaming commission unanimously rejected a proposal from DraftKings to take wagers on the top professional runners. WBUR's Zeninjor M. Womeka reports that commissioners echoed concerns from race organizers about the timing of the proposal. The Boston Marathon is less than two weeks away, and the Boston Athletic Association says that just isn't enough time to assess how wagering could influence the race. BAA officials also say they weren't consulted about the idea before DraftKings proposed it. Commissioner Jordan Maynard says he agreed with those concerns. There are few greater events than the Boston Marathon, and I'm going to respect this local organization's request to be included in the process that could potentially ever allow wagering on their event. In a statement, DraftKings says it respects the commission's decision. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. An independent state agency says child welfare officials aren't doing enough to protect children at the center of custody cases. The Office of the Child Advocate says the state has been too slow to make changes it recommended last May. Those recommendations were in response to the disappearance of five-year-old Harmony Montgomery. The OAC says the state failed to prioritize her safety before she was sent to live with her father, Adam Montgomery, in New Hampshire. He has since been charged with her murder. Housing officials want to build apartments as part of a redevelopment of the Boston Public Library's West End branch. They tell the Boston Globe it would be a mix of affordable housing. Similar proposals are being considered in Chinatown and Upham's Corner. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, providing an industry-aligned curriculum on campus, online, or hybrid. bc.edu slash msae. Boston's David Posternock scored halfway through overtime last night to give the Bruins the win. They beat the Toronto Maple Leafs 2-1 at the Garden. The Bees will host the New Jersey Devils tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics host the Toronto Raptors. The Red Sox are off today after yesterday's 6-3 win over the Tigers in Detroit. Partly sunny, windy, and mid-50s today. Tonight, a few clouds move in and temperatures fall to the low 30s. It'll still be really windy. Then sun all weekend with upper 40s on Saturday and low 50s on Sunday. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. 
And I'm Leila Faldil. On August 30th, 2021, the U.S. completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan. As U.S. aircraft lifted off of the tarmac in Kabul, desperate Afghans clung to the plane. More than 100 Afghan civilians and 13 U.S. service members were killed in a bombing. And the exit left a vacuum that the Taliban swiftly filled. Congress will receive a detailed review of what happened during the two weeks that ended the two decades-long war. The public has a 12-page summary. Here to talk about the findings from that report is White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Good morning. Good morning, Leila. So what does the Biden administration say about what went wrong? I mean, it doesn't say that much. I mean, mm. the administration did acknowledge that they should have moved more quickly to get Americans and Afghans allies out of Kabul. They also acknowledged that they didn't have the best intelligence about how quickly the Afghan national security forces would fold. But really, Leila, it places more blame on the previous administration for not planning a proper withdrawal. I spoke with John Gans. He's a former Pentagon official who has written about White Houses during times of war. And he says it is true that Trump left them in a very bad situation in regards to Afghanistan, but that the report is also more of a positive take on the Biden administration and doesn't really shine much of a light on where it fell short. It did not take an active security clearance to know that the Trump administration had made a complete hash of the U.S. government and its engagement with Afghanistan. It did not take an active security clearance to understand that the Afghan army was in difficult straits. You know, but of course, no president likes to talk about their failures, and Gans called it a bipartisan tradition. Okay, if Biden felt rushed or unprepared, why didn't he keep troops there longer or send in more? I mean, the administration is really walking a fine line here. I mean, some top leaders testified to Congress soon after that they had recommended Biden keep 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. One general said pulling out troops would inevitably lead to the collapse of Afghan forces, which is obviously what happened. Mm. But in its report, the Biden administration argues that staying longer or sending more troops would not have changed their trajectory. And Biden has made clear, as we know, early on that he was not going to hand off the war in Afghanistan to a fifth president. So it sounds like the plan was to leave no matter what. But this was an incredibly expensive war financially, but also in the loss of life and destruction of people's lives. And it feels like Afghanistan is back where it was. What did this war accomplish? Yeah, I mean, it's a really tough question, especially for a lot of veterans. You know, National Security Spokesman John Kirby was asked about this yesterday at the White House briefing, and he says Americans did not serve in vain. He talked about accomplishing the original mission and how objectives evolved. Just because the mission changed over time under previous administrations and leadership and scenarios doesn't mean that anybody who served in Afghanistan doesn't have something to be proud of doesn't have service to this country that they can take with them the rest of their lives and feel honorable about it. You know, and he emphasized that Biden and the First Lady understand and respect their service. Hmm. Now, this was America's longest war, and this report was highly anticipated. Will it bring any closure? You know, I don't know. I mean, House Republicans, and probably not, House Republicans already started their own probe of the withdrawal, and it's going to be more critical than this, and you know it's going to be an issue in the 2024 election. NPR's Franco Ordonez, thank you. Thank you. Every so often on this program, in a story about the pandemic, for example, we mention the World Health Organization. I've said it myself without really thinking about what the WHO really is, what it does, or why it exists at all. 
Our science reporter Ari Daniel has been thinking about the WHO. It turns 75 today, and Ari asked where it came from. When Alexander White looks back on the year 1945, as World War II was shuddering to a close, he sees a planet in ruins. It was a pretty uh, difficult and fraught time for the world 75 years ago. White's a historian of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. More than 50 countries had been involved in combat. And from a human health perspective, here was the great worry. The concern was very much severe infectious disease threats that arise from refugees and soldiers returning to their homes. So a bunch of countries began pushing for some kind of global something that would be in charge of keeping the people of the world healthy. This entity would monitor illness and control the spread of infectious disease through, among other things, vaccination campaigns. But... There was a good amount of, of resistance and concern. This is the period where we're seeing, you know, a good deal of jockeying for political position with the rising power of the United States as well as the Soviet Union. Both of which felt that an organization like this would threaten their growing power. So it was other countries like Brazil and China that, in 1948, pushed to establish the World Health Organization as part of the United Nations. Here's an excerpt from a film produced that year by the UN Public Information Office. In its first assembly, July 1948, Director General Dr. Chisholm declared that this organization was physically prepared to raise the health level of all people and to forever destroy the human afflictions of malaria, cholera, tuberculosis, and syphilis. Wafa El-Sadr is executive vice president of Columbia Global. It was a time when there was great promise that if we come together, we can solve big problems. It was a sense of the promise and the possible. That promise was evident in what many see as the WHO's signature achievement, working in partnership to eradicate smallpox by 1980. Mohammed Zaman is a global public health professor at Boston University. Think about having a disease in the world that over the course of centuries, perhaps millennia, has wiped out entire communities. And then one day to look back and say that disease no longer exists. But turns out that smallpox was a unique victory. The WHO continues to battle many of those same diseases it first hoped to eradicate. Malaria, cholera, tuberculosis, syphilis, soon thereafter polio, and eventually Ebola. In 2014, the WHO was criticized for its handling of an Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Ifanyi Insofor is a fellow at the Aspen Institute. He says the WHO was too slow to declare the Ebola outbreak a public health emergency. Because we know that that really unlocks so many things that should happen to help contain that epidemic. Like treatments, resources, coordination. Uh, eventually they got around to it, but more than 11,000 people had died across West Africa. And then COVID-19 came along, and once again, the WHO was thrust into the public spotlight, where its response received mixed reactions, though many have praised its early action to declare a pandemic and mobilize an international effort to control the virus. Still, some say the organization spread thin. Wafa El-Sadr asks, What can it add today to be more effective, particularly in a very changing world? She'd like to see the WHO focus on the world's most vulnerable, to bring the hope and resources of the WHO to those in greatest need. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. The backdrop of an organization we hear about all the time. This is NPR News. 
Coming up next on Morning Edition, lithium-ion batteries are in everything from electric cars to smartphones, but they're increasingly catching fire. We look at what's being done to solve the problem. And StoryCorps is coming up at 825 with a woman who recalls her 2009 rescue from a flash flood in Georgia. It's 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Mid-50s for your Friday today, under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. We'll also have some high winds. Tonight it falls to the low 30s, then sunny and upper 40s on Saturday. And good weather if you're headed outside for a part of your Easter Sunday. It'll be sunny and in low 50s. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Verizon wants to sublease a big chunk of its office space in the building near North Station. You've probably seen that building over the garden. It has Verizon's name on the side. The Boston Business Journal reports Verizon's listing includes space on seven floors of the building. The company signed a 20-year lease for the space in 2018. A new Lego Discovery Center in Somerville will not open this month as planned. The company says unforeseen circumstances are delaying the opening. The building is undergoing a $12 million renovation. The center's website lists tickets for sale on June 5th and beyond. Row 34 is opening its fourth location today in Kendall Square. Owners of the restaurant and raw bar say the new space has two levels and features a seasonal patio. Row 34 also has locations in the Seaport, Burlington, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at plasticsrecycling.org. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Falded. Lithium-ion batteries are used in everything from electric cars to smartphones. And over the past several years, they've been exploding on airplanes, in people's homes, and on cargo ships. Our colleagues over at The Indicator from Planet Money, Waylon Wong and Darian Woods, spoke to a former cargo ship captain about this issue and what's being done to solve it. Captain Rahul Khanna spent 14 years at sea in charge of cargo ships, transporting everything from oil to iron ore to grain. Today, Rahul is the global head of marine risk consulting at the insurance company Allianz. That's a fancy way of saying he spends his time thinking about all the things that can go wrong at sea. And lately, a big problem for the maritime industry is lithium-ion battery fires. 2017, I think, was the time that we recognized it first. We started to see regular fires, regular incidents happening. And at that time, we thought this is an emerging trend. Fast forward a few more years, now it's almost an emergency. 
In 2022, Allianz looked at five years' worth of marine insurance claims, and it found that fire and explosion was the most costly kind of loss. It was also one of the top causes of total losses, which is when nothing can be recovered from a ship. While Rahul says these fires are an urgent issue for the maritime industry, overall, these battery fires are still not that common. One estimate put the failure rate at one out of every 10 million lithium-ion batteries. But there are a lot of batteries out there, and it keeps growing. And even one failure can result in a fire with catastrophic consequences. Some fires have resulted in deaths, and it's because it's a dangerous kind of fire that gets super hot super fast. Previous fires have shown that water can put out a lithium-ion battery fire eventually, but it takes a whole lot of water. And because it's so hard to bring down the battery's temperature, the fire can keep reigniting. There's even a risk of explosion because of flammable vapors that can ignite. Allianz, the insurance company where Rahul works, says that because shipboard fires are so hard to extinguish, the focus should be on prevention. And this responsibility falls on the entire supply chain for lithium-ion batteries. So to start from, we have the manufacturers who have responsibility in producing a quality product and, and doing everything as much as possible by the book. Rahul says a lot of battery manufacturers sprang up in response to the huge consumer demand for electronic devices. And the quality of these batteries can be uneven. A poorly made battery can be a real hazard. And then you have the shippers who are packaging, transporting it from the factories to the ships, and then stuffing them in containers. Batteries need to be stored in a certain way to prevent fires from starting. And they're supposed to be labeled as lithium batteries so that they're handled properly while in transit. Misdeclared cargo has been going around in the shipping industry for a long time, but it has now become a problem which we really need to deal with. Allianz says that some container ship operators are beefing up inspections and imposing higher fines on misdeclared cargo. And when it comes to improving safety on the ships themselves, Rahul says that people in the industry, along with the United Nations, are talking about updating regulations around what kinds of fire detection systems should be required on board. Waylon Wong, Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shunoy. Coming up, a former member of the group Daft Punk talks about his first orchestral work. And in 20 minutes, the latest on the Tennessee legislature's historic expulsion of two black lawmakers. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium. Guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch. And center stage, themusicemporium.com. And direct tire and auto service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. Directtire.com. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's here and now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks.
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Israel says its missile strikes hit Palestinian targets in Lebanon this morning. In Tennessee, the Republican-led legislature expelled two black lawmakers who took part in a gun control protest on the floor of the state house, but voted not to expel a white lawmaker. And in Methuen, a former city councilor and police officer has pleaded not guilty to corruption charges. We'll get today's top stories in 10 minutes. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAFCPAs, Accounting, Audit, Tax, Advisory, and Wealth Management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. Gusty winds today with temperatures in the mid-50s and partly sunny skies. More clouds fill the skies tonight as temperatures drop to the low 30s. We'll still have high winds. Sunny this weekend with upper 40s on Saturday and low 50s on Sunday. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 751. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. You might not know what they look like, but you probably know the music they made. When you decided to walk away. That is Daft Punk, the now defunct house music duo from France who kept their faces hidden under shiny robot helmets. Thomas Bangotier was half of that group, and this is the music he's making now. Today, Bangalter releases his debut album of classical music titled Mythologies. Turns out a techno music composer writing classical music is not as much of a stretch as you might think. In 2019, the French choreographer Angelin Preljocage contacted me to write an orchestral score for a ballet commissioned by the Opéra National de Bordeaux in France. And it was an interesting coincidence because... Uh, I was very um, attracted by the idea of writing for the orchestra and orchestrating myself. So this is something that you've been thinking about doing? Yes. I had, with Daft Punk previously, worked with an orchestra, and uh, I really wanted to really write for the specific different instruments and, and do the orchestration myself. I remember back when I was uh, uh, in my 20s going to raves, the whole point of why I loved it, because the music happened in a very spontaneous manner. So considering that that's how most people know your music, um, how do you kind of just extract yourself from that and create this? When I think about spontaneity, it's about doing things in the moment and obviously writing 220 pages of sheet music and score for the orchestra is a a long process, but at each page and each bar, I was trying to uh, keep a fresh ear and a fresh eye about things to experiment and rules to break, going from techno and then here working with ballet music, but with the same love of contrast and oppositions in very sweet things and very, and very violent things, going from one thing to another. 
What was the most fun part about this for you? I guess the most fun was my mother was a, a ballet dancer, and so I was raised in that environment uh, with choreographer and, and dancing classes, and to re-emerge and imagine the rhythms and the and the motifs for the dancers to dance to was fun. It was a quite solitary process, and when we got to the starting of the rehearsals and seeing these 20 dancers, 55-piece orchestra, and, and all the technicians around, it became like uh, more than 100 people to make this performance happen. Uh, it, it's fun. It's fun going from this aspect of solitude to a collective spirit. What was the most frustrating part, the most difficult part about this? It was like climbing a mountain. The piece is about 90 minutes long, and uh, the first thing when you start with a blank paper is, uh, how am I going to get there? You know, it's not even about how stylish you climb the mountain. Uh, it's really, are you going to be able to climb that mountain and give that music to the dancers? I guess the fact that it was all these mythologies in some kind of fragmented way was uh, reassuring because it had some narrative arc, but it was also pretty open. So it, it, it allowed a, a certain freedom and, and creativity that would take away the fear of the process. How is the language of classical music different than electronic music? It's a different way of looking at infinite possibilities. Uh, there's somehow a fixed palette with the orchestral music, but there's still an infinity of things you can do with that fixed palette. I've always loved, I think, constraints. In electronic music, there's some kind of an infinity of sounds available to you. And somehow that infinity of sounds become a little bit troubling and disconcerting and you don't even know where to start. Did I hear you right when you said that you love constraints? I love some constraints because it's triggering creativity in an interesting way. I think in terms of the tools to have some limitation uh, has always been challenging and interesting at the same time. The other aspect which is fascinating to me is to get away from technology and closer to the, you know, human heartbeats. Now, Thomas, I'm... I'm not going to ask you whether there's a chance in the future that Daft Punk gets back together, but is that music in your past now? Uh, I think Daft Punk as a group and as a collective and as what we expressed and experimented is something from the past. But in terms of medium and ways to explore things, I've not thrown away uh, the drum machines and the synthesizers that I was using. So I, I see more of the fact that this project that uh, Guiman and I have been doing for almost uh, 30 years is something from the past. Uh, and, and we're very happy and very proud and in peace with how fortunate we were to express ourselves so freely and, and how we were able to express what we wanted to express together. 
it's good to hear that you have not thrown away the drum machines. That's composer Thomas Bongarter. His album is called Mythologies, and it's out today. Thomas, thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. And Live Nation, presenting Tedeschi Trucks Band's Garden Party at the TD Garden on October 27th. Tickets and more information at livenation.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Pentagon officials say they're investigating how some of their top-secret documents on Ukraine's military plans were published on social media. It's Friday, April 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from one of the two Tennessee lawmakers expelled over their protest for more gun control. Both are black Democrats. We know that this is the consequence of a body that wants to suppress not just our votes, but the votes of our districts, which are majority black and brown. Also this hour, how wage growth is breaking down barriers in the job market. Plus, the new chief judge at the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., who's making important rulings in a federal probe of former President Donald Trump. The grand jury proceedings that he will be handling will, by rule, be secret, but he will try to promote transparency where possible. Partly sunny, windy, and in the 50s, it's 801. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Forecasters think U.S. employers added fewer jobs in March than they did the month before. NPR's Scott Horsley reports we'll get an update on the job market from the Labor Department later this hour. The job market has been remarkably resilient in recent months, despite rising interest rates and slowing economic growth. There are a number of signs, though, that hiring may have slowed last month. Job openings were down at the beginning of March, and industry surveys point to reduced demand for workers. The Federal Reserve would welcome some slowdown in hiring as it tries to get a handle on inflation. The Fed's been worried that fast-rising wages could put more upward pressure on prices, especially in service businesses such as restaurants that rely on a lot of workers. Average wages in February were up 4.6 percent from a year ago. Forecasters expect today's report to show a somewhat smaller annual pay increase for March. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Tennessee House of Representatives has expelled two Democratic members, both black men. A third Democrat escaped expulsion. Republicans say they broke decorum rules by speaking at the podium without being called upon. From member station WPLN, Blaze Ganey reports. Each of the three Democrats that participated in a gun control protest on the House floor faced the expulsion votes. The only one to survive was Knoxville Representative Gloria Johnson, who's white. She believes race played a factor. Republican House Speaker Cameron Sexton, who voted to have all three expelled, disagrees. I don't think it was due to the color of her skin. Minority leader Karen Camper says she feels the caucus let the two men down by not mentoring and teaching them the rules. When you learn the rules, you learn to beat them at their rules. 
county commissions can vote to fill empty seats in the legislature, members on those commissions have already voiced their support in reseating the expelled lawmakers. For NPR News, I'm Blaze Ganey in Nashville. The Biden administration is proposing a rule that's intended to stop blanket bans on transgender student-athletes. The proposal relies on Title IX, the federal rule outlawing sex discrimination in education. But NPR's Sequoia Carrillo says the proposal would still give schools leeway to ban some trans athletes. The proposed changes still give schools some flexibility to ban transgender athletes, depending on age and sport. For the most part, the administration is going to let schools make those decisions on a case-by-case or sport-by-sport basis. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo prepared that report. The Biden administration proposal comes as the U.S. Supreme Court has declined to intervene in a West Virginia case involving a trans girl who is also an athlete. She is participating on girls' track and field teams. West Virginia has passed a law banning this. The U.S. Supreme Court refusal means she can still play. But the action by the court came on the court's emergency docket. Decisions are made without a full briefing and little or no explanation is given. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. A former Methuen city councilor is facing public corruption charges. It's part of a wide-ranging conspiracy allegedly led by the former police chief. Sean Fountain has pleaded not guilty to charges he faked documents to make it appear he was qualified to be a police officer. More now from WBUR's Ali Jarmanning. The charges stem from an investigation into former police chief Joseph Solomon. He hired Fountain and allegedly conspired to secure inflated contracts for officers. City Councilor DJ Beauregard says Fountain's charges are just the start. This is just one piece of this broader conspiracy that um, has been uh, inflicted upon the taxpayers of Methuen. Beauregard says he hopes state and federal authorities prosecute others involved in the scheme. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Germani. Boston teenagers who are looking for work this summer will have more jobs and a wider variety of positions to choose from. Mayor Michelle Wu says the city's summer jobs program asked teens what they thought would help them gain valuable experience while making some money. They wanted to have more opportunities with companies to get a full professional experience. And so I want to thank the many, many companies who have stepped up. Wu says the city has arranged for 7,000 jobs, but it's looking for more businesses to get involved. Boston teenagers 14 to 18 are eligible. Massachusetts residents who use the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program will begin getting money from the state today. More than 650,000 families will get at least an extra $38 per month. That comes in response to overall SNAP assistance decreasing with federal pandemic-era benefits ending last month. The extra state payments will end in June. Rescuers believe an entangled right whale off Cape Cod is in grave danger. A team from the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown says it managed to free the young female from 100 feet of rope on Tuesday. But fishing line is still stuck in the whale's mouth and twisted around her body. The center's Scott Landry says rescuers are not giving up, but they are frustrated. We worked very hard for that whale, and we're prepared to do so again. And this 
sort of highlights the fact that, you know, preventing this from happening in the first place is really the best option. Right. Whales are critically endangered. There are fewer than 400 left in the wild. It's 8.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. The Bruins won their fourth straight game last night. They beat the Toronto Maple Leafs 2-1 in overtime at the Garden. The Boston University's men's college hockey team lost in the national semifinals yesterday. They fell to Minnesota 6-2. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics will face the Toronto Raptors. Partly sunny today and in the mid-50s, it'll be windy, which has prompted the National Weather Service to issue a red flag warning for potential wildfires starting this afternoon. Cloudy overnight with temperatures around freezing, mostly sunny tomorrow and near 50, sunny on Sunday and in the lower 50s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include Zoom. Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fulton. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The Tennessee State House of Representatives is a little smaller today. The Republican-dominated legislature voted to throw out two Democrats. They were among three who protested a mass shooting and called for gun control on the House floor there. The move for a violation of decorum was unusual and prompted chants of shame on you from critics. Now, the Republican House Speaker Cameron Sexton told reporters he needed to take this step to maintain order. I'm concerned about the House floor following the process and procedures that are laid out that you should follow and not having a protest, as it was described over here, on the House floor. Now, elsewhere, Sexton went further comparing that protest on the House floor to the January 6th insurrection. He said it was equivalent, if not worse. Um, Just a reminder that on January 6, 2021, thousands of people broke into the U.S. Capitol, caused a number of deaths, threatened to hang the vice president, ransacked offices, and disrupted the ceremonial counting of a presidential election. In the Tennessee protest, three lawmakers talked out of turn. The two ousted lawmakers, Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, are both black. The only Democrat who survived last night's vote was Gloria Johnson. She's white. Pearson addressed this last night. Here's a clip from MSNBC. You cannot ignore the racial dynamic of what happened today. Two young black lawmakers get expelled and the one white woman does not. That's a statement in and of itself. Let's speak now to the other lawmaker who was expelled. Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones is on the line. Good morning. Hi, good morning. I guess I misidentified you just now. I should say former Tennessee state representative. Is that right? That is correct because of the actions of the Republican supermajority here in Tennessee. Well, let's put this right on the line. Um, You did break the rules. There doesn't seem to be any doubt about that. And I guess we could characterize this as an act of civil disobedience. Part of civil disobedience is taking the consequences of it. Is this not the natural consequence of what you did? This is not the natural consequence. This is the most extreme reaction that we saw. That's a very dangerous precedent for democracy. Um, for a rule, a breach of decorum, our colleagues expelled as this is the only the third time in Tennessee history that the House of Representatives has expelled its members. And the other times involve criminal or unethical activity. But we were expelled for a breach of decorum. But in reality, we were expelled for 
obedience to our oath of office to speak for our constituents and to make sure that our dissent and protest is marked um, for the journal when we see an action that is injurious to the people. What did you hope and expect to happen when you went up to the podium uh, at the front of the House chamber and spoke? So, well, the next day, the speaker already stripped my committees from me. He turned off, you know, had my ID badge to the building turned off, even though I was still a representative at the time. Hmm. Um, shut off my parking privileges to park at the legislature. And so that was the reaction that we saw. But then because the speaker falsely mischaracterized our nonviolent, peaceful protest and solidarity with the people as an insurrection, he escalated the situation, not only against us, but against those thousands of young people at the Capitol who were protesting, simply saying that they want to live in the, in, in the days following a mass shooting here in Nashville. And I represent a part of Nashville. So our community is grieving. There's trauma here. People are calling for action. And the first action we get from the Tennessee General Assembly is to expel members for calling for common sense gun laws. I guess we should remind people that the context here is a mass shooting in Nashville that left three students and three adults dead. But what was it that you were hoping the Tennessee legislature would do in response to your protest? We hope that they would listen to the young people who were gathered there. This, we've had the largest protest in Nashville's history and in the past 10 years um, in Nashville right, going on right now. Thousands of people, students, parents, teachers, grandparents, um, concerned community members here at the Tennessee Capitol. And, we, and, and the speaker refused to let them be heard. They, he refused to let us even talk about the issue of gun violence on the House floor that week. Anytime we brought it up, our microphones were cut off. We were ruled out of order. And so we did not have even a venue to voice the grievances of our community. And so we had no other choice but to do something out of the ordinary and to try and, and stand in solidarity with disrupting business as normal, because business as normal was sticking our, hand, sticking our head in the sand when, when our children are dying. Um, we've already heard the allegation that race played a role in this uh, because two black lawmakers, including you, were expelled and a white lawmaker who was also involved in the protest gets to stay. Our correspondent Blaze Ganey in Nashville adds another dimension to this, saying that these are two, you are, two black lawmakers under 30 who were outspoken, and he says you'd been outspoken on a number of issues. Did your your youth and the rest of your tenure in office have something to do with this? I mean, that's absolutely correct. We're the two youngest black lawmakers. Um, I'm 27, Representative Pearson's 28. And, and so we represent, you know, the voices of our generation um, and, and race that most definitely. And, and I think Representative Johnson um, said it, you know, when she was not expelled and I was expelled, you know, we, that was the first two cases heard. Um, the news of me last and she said, I think it's because of skin color. Uh, Representative Cameron Sexton has, has trafficked in racial rhetoric and racism. And so we know that this is the consequence of a body that um, wants to suppress not just our votes, but the vo votes of our districts, which are majority black and brown. I, I represent one of the most diverse districts in Tennessee. And so now those 78,000 people have been silenced. You, you accuse the speaker there of, of racism. We'll certainly reach out to him to get his perspective on that. But I want to ask you in the moment we have left, uh, I've studied legislatures, I've studied the history of Congress a little bit, and there have been many occasions where a lawmaker gets in trouble with their colleagues, uh, and one thing that they may do is go home and run the next election, the special election to replace them even, and sometimes the people will send them right back again and they demand their seat back. Do you intend to do that? We are looking at all options right now. I know the city council gets to make a special appointment to this seat. 
Um, and the council has called a special meeting, and I, and I know that um, a lot of the council members here are saying that they're going to reappoint me. Now the question will be, will Speaker Cameron Sexton allow me to be seated, allow us to be seated, or will he once again try and subvert the will of voters? If if the city council, which gets to make the choice in this case, sends you back, will you go back and demand your seat? Most definitely. Um, I will demand the voice from the 78,000 people who I represented. Justin Jones, state representative, former state representative from Tennessee, who was expelled by the Republican-led House of Representatives yesterday. Thanks very much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you. The federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. is a hub of activity, from the trials of January 6 rioters to grand jury investigations of former President Donald Trump. A new chief judge recently took control of that court and quickly issued a ruling that paved the way for testimony by former Vice President Mike Pence. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson has this profile. It's hard not to notice when Chief Judge Jeb Boesberg walks down the corridors of the federal courthouse. For one thing, he's about six feet six inches tall. For another, he's the kind of guy who stops to chat with all the prosecutors and defense lawyers and court staffers he sees. What made him such an effective trial court prosecutor is he had this way of connecting with people from all walks of life, and it was genuine. That's Glenn Kirshner, who supervised Judge Boesberg in the U.S. Attorney's Office decades ago, after Boesberg graduated from Yale and Oxford University. They were part of a small unit of prosecutors who handled the toughest homicide cases in the city. One, he never lost a homicide case. And two, he took the difficult cases to trial, and I know because I assigned him some of those difficult cases. Boesberg remains close to the lawyers he met in that homicide section in the 1990s. One of them is Ronald Machen. They shared an office and played basketball every Wednesday back in those days. And he was good. I mean, he's a tall guy and played at Yale and uh, was very successful and has more athleticism than, you know, I couldn't believe it. He's actually pretty good. (laughs) Boesberg went on to become a judge in the D.C. Superior Court, appointed by then-President George W. Bush. Years later, President Obama elevated him to a seat on the federal court. He won unanimous confirmation by the Senate in 2011. Boesberg has since become one of the top feeder judges in the U.S., sending many of his young clerks onto clerkships at the Supreme Court. Again, Ron Machen. You know, this is a guy that's devoted his life to public service that could be the managing partner of probably any firm in the city, making millions of dollars, but he has devoted his life to serving people. In his new job as chief judge, Boesberg handles complicated issues that arise in the grand juries. Almost from the start, weighty legal questions came his way. Looks like Mike Pence might finally testify in the special counsel's investigation of the former President Donald Trump. In a ruling that still sealed, Boesberg rejected Trump's claims of executive privilege, but found the special counsel could not ask Pence certain questions about his role presiding over the Senate on January 6th. Pence said this week he won't appeal, which means he could testify in the coming weeks about Trump's pressure campaign to overturn the 2020 election. Former prosecutor Glenn Kirshner says, based on what he's read, Boesberg's decision is both proper and savvy. You know, it kind of gives everybody what they're entitled to under the law, but it keeps matters moving forward. 
Boesberg's friend and former colleague Amy Jeffress says the judge will try to be transparent in his new role. I think that he will take steps to make sure that the public has access to all of the information that he can possibly release. And the grand jury proceedings that he will be handling will, by rule, be secret. But he will try to promote transparency where possible. A media coalition, including NPR, is working to make that Pence ruling public. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we examine the Biden administration's new proposal for how transgender students are treated in school sports. And at 845, experts are weighing in on whether Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas may have violated ethics rules following revelations he failed to disclose gifts of luxury trips. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And William James College's Hybrid Graduate Certificate in Executive Coaching. Boost your career or start a new one. Apply now for fall. WilliamJames.edu. Abbott Elementary is a fictional sitcom about teachers who have the odds stacked against them. And real-life teachers say it's not so far from the truth. I can't believe they're actually talking about this on TV. Like, other people are going to watch this and see this. And, like, I think that's amazing. And I have to laugh because if you don't laugh, like, you will cry. Philadelphia teachers tell their thoughts on the show on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny today in the mid to upper 50s. We'll have strong winds and coupled with dry conditions, the National Weather Service says the risk of brush fires is dangerously high. It's put a red flag warning in place for nearly all of Massachusetts. Frank Nocera is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He says it's not unusual to have red flag warnings this time of year. We call this the pre-green up stage where there aren't any leaves on the trees. The vegetation is still dormant. So it's a bit easier to ignite fires uh, this time of year. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall to a low around 30. Tomorrow, sunny and near 50. Sunny on Sunday in the low 50s. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, 
the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. The Biden administration announced a proposed rule aimed at stopping broadbands on transgender athletes who want to join teams that align with their gender identity. In recent years, at least 19 states have passed these types of bans. The administration plans to allow some restrictions, but does not want schools to completely reject trans athletes. Here to tell us more is NPR Sequoia Carrillo. Good morning. Good morning. So what exactly is the administration proposing here? So as you mentioned, a lot of states have passed bans on transgender students joining school sports teams that don't align with their assigned sex at birth. So, for example, blocking a trans girl from running on a girl's track team. Mm -hmm. With this proposal, the administration is hoping to make those broad bans illegal. And they're trying to do that through Title IX, which makes sex-based discrimination illegal in education. The Education Department says they've been talking to stakeholders across the country for the past two years to find the best path forward, and today's announcement is the result of that research. But it's important to note that the administration is specifically targeting blanket bans. You may have seen headlines yesterday saying the proposal will allow schools to ban transgender students from their school's sports teams. Others were saying this protects transgender athletes. And the reality is that it actually does both. So how does that work. So the proposed changes still give schools some flexibility to ban transgender athletes depending on age and sport. The idea is that it's very different to ban a trans seventh grader from playing on a volleyball team per se than Mm -hmm. it is to ban a competitive high school or college swimmer. And for the most part, the administration is going to let schools make those decisions on a case-by-case or sport-by-sport basis. So the Ed Department chose kind of a middle ground here. It seems like the main goal is to target broad state bans. So what does this mean for bans that are already in place? For now, it doesn't mean anything. This is still a proposal, and it could take a long time to see this enforced nationally, if it ever is. It's also an interesting week for this announcement. It's been a big one for this issue. Lawmakers in Kansas have been trying for two years to pass a statewide ban. On Wednesday, they finally succeeded and overturned their Democratic governor's veto. Kansas is now one of at least 19 states that have instituted a similar ban in just the last three years. And then yesterday, the Supreme Court denied West Virginia's request to fully enforce its ban. That law was designed to keep transgender athletes from girls' sports teams across the state. It's important to note that the court wasn't ruling on the merits of that particular case, though at least one of the justices did hint in his dissent that he expects this issue to make it to the court soon. What kind of timeline are we looking at for this proposal? How soon could it happen? So the change is actually just adding one sentence to the law, but it's the first step in a very long process that could take months, maybe even years. Uh, The only thing we know for sure is that even if this proposal does go through, teachers, coaches, and students will not see this change anytime soon. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo. Thanks, Sequoia. Thank you. It's Friday. Don't really need to say any more than that. Now we should go on. It's time for StoryCorps, which we hear on Fridays. Today we remember a flash flood that put parts of Douglasville, Georgia, underwater in 2009. Zach Stephanie was working at a trucking company overlooking the rising waters. And he came to StoryCorps with his friend Melissa Brooks to reflect. We were seeing refrigerators go by, sofas float by, 
And when I first saw the car, I initially kind of laughed about it for a minute because, you know, we were like, oh, wow, somebody's car got washed from the driveway and they don't even know it until one of the guys said, hey, somebody's in that car. It was like my eyes zoomed in to you and I saw the fear in your eyes. Yeah, you know, I was going to meet my boss and I was in a hurry. I didn't realize what the situation was. I was just driving along until I looked over to the side of me and I saw the river. Then I knew I was in trouble. And I know I had a matter of seconds to try to rescue you. So I thought about it then, if I can find that spool of rope, there would be enough for me to tie myself to it and then just swim out to you and have the guys pull me back. I was strapping myself up and by that time the car had sunk. At that point, I thought about my dad. He was a shop foreman right beside Chalahoochee River. One time, he kept hearing somebody yelling help, and as he went to go get this person, the guy was panicking. He was grabbing onto my dad, onto his shoulders and hand, preventing him to swim, and they both end up going down. Both end up drowning in the river. I was eight years old. So I was just saying to myself, I'm going to go get this lady. I'm going to make sure I got this water today because my dad left out here the same way. And I have three kids. I wasn't going to let that happen. So I just really stayed focused. Somebody hollered and said she's out of the car and she was hanging on to a tree. Yeah. I was holding on to this flimsy little tree. Yes. And the branches were breaking off. I knew that if this tree broke, that I was gone. I was terrified to see you just drown. So what I ended up doing is swimming right into the current and just pulling my way up to you. I remember your voice. It was crisp and clear, just like you were standing beside of me. You kept telling me they were going to get me, that it was going to be okay. Now, hold on, hold on. And you saved my life. The next day, I looked out the window. I could see the bird go by. And I'm just glad, you know, it turned out like this. I'm just glad for both of us to live another day. Both of us, yes. <laughs> yeah. Zach Stephanie and Melissa Brooks in Atlanta. Their story court interview is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Pentagon wants to know how some of its top secret documents ended up on Twitter and Telegram. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org. And Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Two black Democrats, Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, last night were expelled from the GOP-controlled Tennessee legislature for their conduct last week in a state house debate about gun control. A third legislator, Gloria Johnson, who is white, narrowly survived an effort to expel her, says Johnson. We are losing our democracy. We need to make sure that we stomp out this march to fascism. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and we cannot forget that. The three Democrats joining in a public demonstration calling for gun control were deemed in breach of chamber rules last week when they appeared in the well of the floor of the State House using bullhorns to speak without being recognized. The action to expel Pearson and Jones is extraordinary. Since the Civil War, the step had only been taken a handful of other times. Violence continues near Jerusalem's most revered holy sites today. In Jerusalem, Shlomi Naman says that his law office was damaged. What happened is the explosion from a rocket uh, who came from uh, Lebanon and uh, caused all the damage to my office. Tensions are high in the Middle East as Israel has launched rare strikes in southern Lebanon, also bombing targets in the Gaza Strip. This after militants in Lebanon fired rockets into Israel. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Nine out of ten teachers in Massachusetts are white, while four out of ten students statewide are people of color. That's why one city has a new program aimed at encouraging more students of color to become teachers. WBWAR Samuela Petricelli takes us to Lowell. Research shows that when students of color have a teacher with their same race or gender, they have more positive school experiences. So Lowell High School has partnered with the University of Massachusetts Lowell to try and spark interest. The program enables high schoolers to earn college credit in projects like working with elementary school students. Associate Professor Stacey A.G. Sushel is helping lead the partnership at UMass Lowell. We feel like if we can do that early, that they will understand they're coming into a profession that will validate them and that is not going to continue to work against them. More than 30 Lowell High students participate in the program. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samuela Petricelli. Congresswoman Lori Turhan is asking federal regulators what's being done to prevent hate and harassment in online gaming. Turhan led a group of lawmakers in asking the Federal Trade Commission about ways it can protect gamers. She also asked the FTC for ways Congress can use legislation to block online extremism. Academy Award-winning actress Michelle Yeoh will speak to Harvard Law graduates this spring. She'll be at the school's class day ceremonies. Harvard Law's Dean of Students says Yeoh will inspire the graduates to make a difference in the world. The ceremony takes place on May 24th. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Bruins beat the Toronto Maple Leafs in overtime last night at the Garden. The final was 2-1. to one. The Bees will host the New Jersey Devils tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics take on the Toronto Raptors. The Seas' regular season will end on Sunday. 
The Red Sox have today off. They beat the Tigers yesterday in Detroit 6-3. to Partly sunny, windy, and mid-50s today. Tonight, a few clouds move in and temperatures fall to the low 30s. It'll still be really windy. Then sun all weekend with upper 40s on Saturday and low 50s on Sunday. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. Top secret documents about the war in Ukraine have appeared on social media. These would appear to be U.S. military documents. They offer details on Ukraine's military and the state of the war, and somebody shared them on social media. The Pentagon says it is investigating how the documents leaked and whether they were altered. For more, we're joined by NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie. Hi, Greg. Hi, Layla. So can you start by just describing these documents? Right. So they've been posted on Twitter and Telegram. Uh, This was first reported by the New York Times. Now, we've seen several of the documents ourselves. Uh, One, for example, is labeled Top Secret, entitled Status of the Conflict as of March 1st. There's a detailed map of Ukraine, places where troops are concentrated, lots of charts that describe uh, troop strength and available weapons. We've seen several such documents. You can tell they're physical copies. You can even see where they were folded and creased, and someone took a picture and then published them. Okay, so top-secret documents show up on Twitter and Telegram. Is it clear these are authentic? And if so, how did they end up on social media? Yeah, they, Layla, they do appear real. The Pentagon is certainly taking it very seriously, trying to get to the bottom of this. Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh said, quote, we are aware of the reports on social media and the department is reviewing the matter. Now, military analysts uh, we've been in contact with say the documents do appear genuine, but it also looks like they may have been altered. Just one example, one chart puts the Ukrainian death toll at around 71,000, which may be fairly realistic. But the Russian toll is listed as 17,000. And the Russian count is believed to be much, much higher, though neither side releases uh, overall figures. Mm. So it sounds like maybe these documents are real, but part of them are altered. So some disinformation there, right? Yeah, yeah, Layla, that's certainly a possibility. Hmm. Military analysts have raised the suspicion that, uh, you know, a pro-Russian person or group got these documents and may have then made these kinds of changes. But there's certainly a lot of unanswered questions here. You know, if the Russians are getting their hands on top secret documents, why would they want to put it on social media and publicize it to the world? So we really should stress it's not exactly clear who's behind this or what the motives are. How valuable could these documents be to the Russians? You know, it's hard to say. There's no indication that any of them reveal Ukrainian battle plans for a widely expected offensive uh, this spring. It looks kind of like a daily summary of the war. Still, they do talk about combat brigades that Ukraine is assembling and when they would be ready to fight. There's also information on how rapidly Ukraine is burning through ammunition, which could conceivably help the Russians figure out where the Ukrainians may be running low. 
Okay, let's take a step back away from these documents and talk about the state of the actual war. Yeah, of course, what really matters is what happens on the battlefield. Um, the Russians have been pressing an offensive in eastern Ukraine for the past couple months uh, in and around the town of Bakhmut, and they've really only made incremental progress. The Ukrainians have been holding them off. Uh, a Ukrainian offensive is widely anticipated fairly soon. Most analysts expect it to focus on the areas controlled by Russian troops in southeastern Ukraine. NPR's Greg Myrie. Thanks, Greg. My pleasure. Right now in this country, there's a tale of two job markets, so to speak. We reported on a lot of high-profile layoffs in the tech and media spaces, including here at NPR, but other sectors are still hot and they're racing to find people. We reached out to businesses looking to recruit and retain employees. Lauren Shenning is the Talent Acquisition Manager with Coakley & Williams Construction in Fairfax, Virginia. She says they're willing to hire people from across the country. We're a general contractor, so there is a workforce shortage in the construction industry. Stephen Kramer, president of the North American Customer Service Management Association in Phoenix, Arizona, says the increasing request for remote work is hampering efforts there. Some companies are really trying to bring people back into the office, uh, so that becomes a challenge for the employers. Let's turn now to Aaron Dubé. He's an economist with the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Good morning. Thanks for being on the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about where the job market is hot right now. So following the pandemic, we have had a very tight labor market, especially for low-wage workers. Mm. Workers in the service industries think hospitality, for example, in restaurants and hotels. This has been a sector that has seen very fast wage growth. And that has led to something that's very interesting. We've actually seen wages rise faster at the bottom than the mm. top, reducing wage inequality. So that has flipped the script Interesting. on rising wage inequality for over the last 40 years. So does this then make it a more fair job market where low wage earners are in a position to demand better pay? I think given how poorly wages rose for those at the bottom and the middle of the distribution for so long, this tighter labor market that has led to sharper wage growth at the bottom would seem to be as fair to many people. So is this breaking down other barriers as well? Yeah, so one interesting thing is also that we've seen the gap fall in terms of wages of black workers and white workers. Again, a gap that had been actually rising uh, over many decades. Similarly, we have seen some reduction in the gap between women and men, reducing the gender pay gap. So generally speaking, a tighter labor market tends to do good things to workers, especially those who are less privileged. Mm. Are jobs the best indicator when the Federal Reserve looks for clues to inflation, interest rates, the risk of a recession? Certainly, the labor market tightness has been cited by the Federal Reserve as one uh, possibly 
critical determinant of of rising inflation. I think in a lot of research, economists still remain divided on exactly what role wages have played. In our own work, we have found that it, it's played some role, but not necessarily the dominant role explaining the rise in inflation in the last few years. But certainly the Federal Reserve will be paying close attention to that question. And what do you expect to see in the job market in the next few months? So I think obviously there are many variables, hard to say. Uh, I do think that there's some chance of uh, that the labor market is getting less tight. Uh, but overall, I think there's a good chance that we're going to see the soft landing that the Fed has been really after. Economics professor Aaron Dubey at UMass Amherst. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. A heads-up for weekend T-Riders. The Orange Line will be closed all day tomorrow between Back Bay and North Station. The T is asking you to use the Green Line as an alternate. Coming up on Morning Edition, questions are being raised about whether U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas violated ethics rules after revelations he failed to disclose gifts from a conservative billionaire. Then at 9, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest from Israel, which launched missiles at Lebanon earlier today. In your forecast, mid-50s for your Friday today under skies with a mix of sun and clouds. We'll also have some high winds. Tonight it falls to the low 30s, then sunny and upper 40s on Saturday, and good weather if you're headed outside for part of your Easter Sunday. It'll be sunny and in the low 50s. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass. Advising buyers and sellers in today's changing real estate market. More at mraboston.com WBUR. And the BU Center on Forced Displacement, presenting Abdul Razak Gurna, winner of the 2021 Nobel Prize in Literature, Monday, April 24th, 6 p.m. at Morse Auditorium. Gurna's novels record the struggles and triumphs of those displaced in decolonizing Africa. Tickets at bu.edu cfd. A real estate developer wants to build more than 300 new rental units in Alston. The property on Pratt Street is within walking distance of the Harvard Avenue and Packard's Corner Green Line T-Stops. It's currently home to a warehouse and two-unit apartment building. Gas prices are on the rise in Massachusetts. AAA reports the average cost for a gallon of regular is now $3.31. That's up four cents from a week ago. The cost is still far below the national average of $3.58. Six Flags New England will begin welcoming thrill-seekers today for the first time this season. The theme park in Agawam opens today and will operate weekends only for now. It's set to open daily in mid-June. It's 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch & Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We're here in Studio 31 at NPR headquarters. On the other side of the glass in the other room is our director, Lily Quiros, and our technical director, Zach Coleman. And guys, when I heard this story of a billionaire taking Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas on vacation, my first thought was, well, he can do that. The Supreme Court has famously failed to adopt any ethics rules for itself. But when I read a little bit further, the investigation by ProPublica asserted that Justice Thomas violated an actual existing law, not just an ethics guideline, but the law, by failing to disclose almost 20 years of regular vacations and travel. New York University law professor Stephen Gillers is here to talk about it. Good morning. Good morning. What does that law say? It's the Ethics in Government Act, and it applies throughout the federal government, including to the justices. And so we don't have to worry about the absence of ethics rules for the court because the statute itself enables the uh, government to impose reporting obligations on the justices reporting personal hospitality and gifts. Does that mean that Justice Thomas can let someone pay for his vacation, but he just has to tell the government and, in effect, the public that he did so? Well, yes and no. I mean, he he, he does, and every other federal judge does, depending upon how you interpret the phrase personal hospitality of an individual. Justice Thomas had a very weak argument that he did not have to report the Harlan Crow princely gifts because they came from Harlan Crow personally. That, that argument is wrong, but it's not impossible. And he, Justice Thomas, chose to adopt the interpretation that enabled him not to reveal Harlan Crow's generosity. Oh, wait, you're saying that Thomas is saying I would have to report this if it came from a corporation, and Harlan Crow is, is of course, uh, connected with a big interest, but I don't have to report it if it comes from a friend of mine. Is that right? That, well, that's the interpretation that he had. That is, it, he doesn't have to report personal um, hospitality, and that means an uh, invitation from a person, which Harlan Crow is, regardless of who is footing the bill, and regardless of how luxurious the hospitality may be. Well, um, I'm trying to figure out the appropriate forum to pursue this. Uh, Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is calling for his impeachment, but it's a Republican House. Hard to see that. Hard to see that happening. I guess you don't bring it before the Supreme Court. What is the appropriate forum to pursue this question? Well, I mean, theoretically, um, there can be a prosecution, a civil or criminal prosecution. The statute gives the attorney general the power to seek civil or criminal remedies, but that's not going to happen. Um, in about 10 seconds, could anything happen? Probably not. I mean, if, if um, well, what has happened is that last month, the judicial conference amended its rules so that this cannot happen again post-March. Okay, the Judicial Conference of the United States, which oversees federal courts. Stephen Gillers, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. He is a New York University law professor.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report explains why lower lumber prices aren't resulting in lower home prices. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts Catering. Full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings. Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. Hi, it's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO, here with a big, big thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our spring fundraiser. You put us over the top and you helped fuel WBUR. How lucky we are to have you in our lives. If you didn't get a chance to give and you still want to, go to WBUR.org and click on the donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The March U.S. jobs report shows 236,000 jobs were added last month, meeting expectations. In Tennessee, the Republican-led state house voted to expel two black lawmakers who took part in a gun control protest. And here in Massachusetts, residents who get supplemental nutrition assistance plan benefits will get extra money from the state beginning today. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay in touch with the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Our Planet Live in Concert. The Netflix series is now a live concert event coming to Emerson Colonial Theater on April 23rd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. Gusty winds today with temperatures in the mid-50s and partly sunny skies. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston at 851. latest job numbers fits with the narrative of a gently cooling economy. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio. We just got the jobs data for March. 236,000 more people were on payrolls, very close to what forecasters thought would happen. This fits with the emerging scenario that the labor market is cooling down in the way that policymakers would want to see as they fight inflation. A separate survey of households finds the unemployment rate falling slightly to a very low 3.5 percent. Let's look into details here by turning to economist Julia Coronado, founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. Good morning. Good morning. So who's still getting hired and who's getting laid off? Yeah, so we are starting to see job losses in areas you might expect, like construction and manufacturing, retail, temporary help, but lots of healthcare workers, lots of state and local government, mostly teachers, uh, still playing catch-up, still getting hired. Still playing catch-up and still getting hired. Uh, what about, we talk about this, it sounds like a term of art, labor force participation. This is all the number of people working. You do want to see that go up, and it did go up. What does that tell you? People are coming back. Uh, so we are seeing people re-engaging with the labor market. It's also a reflection that immigration flows have been um, more than returning to pre-pandemic levels. So there is definitely better balance in the labor market. That is more workers to meet the demand. More workers. I mean, this is people with work visas coming into the country as those uh, 
and actually adding to the labor force. That's right. That's right. And another indication that this is restoring, helping restore balance in the labor market is that wage growth has been cooling in the last several months. So um, to the extent the Fed was worried about a wage price spiral, that does not look to be taking hold. So that's good news. What was the actual number there for wage growth? I think over three months it was up what? It was up 3.2% over the last three months at an annual rate, so 4.2% 4, 4 over the last year. Mm -hmm. um, those are still solid gains, but, uh, but down from the peaks that we had seen last year. Thank you very much for this. Economist Julia Coronado is also a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Stock markets are closed today for the Good Friday holiday. If you really want some market data, I do have the bond market open for another few hours. It's a truncated day. The yield on the benchmark 10-year uh, Treasury is up at 3.36%. And now let's measure the economy by the log. Not long ago, there was a big lumber shortage. You may remember supply chain log jams and surging demand. But now lumber prices are down from a year ago sharply. So maybe lower prices for newly built homes? Well, think again. Here's Marketplace's Henry Epp. Yes, it's way cheaper to buy lumber now than it was a year ago, but that's compared to an unprecedented price spike, says Crystal Govin, a senior economist at Forest Economic Advisors. As an economist, it ruined our graphs because you have what historically was a lot of volatility just got blown out the window and looks like a straight line now. But that's not likely to bring down the cost of new homes, Govin says, due mostly to the high cost of pretty much everything else. We see that in electrical and plumbing and concrete and sheetrock and roofing. Bart Frisbee is president of contractor Sterling Homes in South Burlington, Vermont. While lumber has receded, and that is extremely helpful, many of those other costs have not and probably never will. One big factor, Frisbee says, is labor. Companies that supply him with all those other materials are still having trouble finding enough workers, he says. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Bitwarden. Currently in use by tens of thousands of IT professionals around the world, Bitwarden is designed to securely and safely store employees' passwords and logins with end-to-end -end encryption. More at bitwarden.com. And by SoFi. With a SoFi high-yield savings account, members can earn more. Plus, deposits are FDIC insured. Learn more at SoFi.com. Get your money right. SoFi Bank N.A. member FDIC. Now to this dam story. Dozens of dams get demolished around the country every year. Maybe they've deteriorated or taking them out restores rivers and habitat. In North Carolina, conservation and environmental groups and the Eastern Band of Cherokee people want to remove a small dam that's nearly a century old, but this requires federal money. WFAE's David Borax has that. The Ela Dam opened in 1925 across the Oconaluftee River in Swain County, North Carolina, on the Tennessee border. Upstream, the river and its tributaries flow through the land of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Eula Dam has disconnected our entire watershed and our tribal lands for nearly a century. Joey Owl is the tribe's Secretary of Agriculture and Natural Resources. He says removing the dam would let aquatic species return to Cherokee lands. Some are endangered or at risk, like a fish called the sicklefin red horse, once an important food source. This dam has served its purpose. Let's get back to restoring nature as it was. The best way to restore a stream is by removing a dam. 
Erin McCombs is with American Rivers, a partner in the Ela Dam proposal. She says the project would restore fish, mussels, and other creatures upstream. The Cherokees have pushed for removal for years without success. That changed in 2021 when the dam's gates opened unexpectedly, sending 8,000 tons of sediment downriver. After that, Owl called the president of the dam's owner, Northbrook Carolina Hydro, and asked, can this dam be removed? And to my own surprise, uh, they're like, yeah, let's get a conversation and let's bring some partners to the table. Within weeks, they had an agreement. Northbrook's Kurt Whitaker manages the dam. He says given its small size and the potential cost of more repairs or spills, the deal made sense. We spent money, we tried to do the right thing, and the river is in good shape. And it's nothing that we ever want to go through again. Northbrook plans to donate the dam to the Cherokees. The tribe has asked U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for $10 million from the 2021 federal infrastructure law to remove it. Tim Gestwicki of North Carolina Wildlife Federation says the project fits the law's intent. So the money is there. We hope and uh, pray that we won't miss this opportunity. A decision on funding is expected by June. Permitting and removal could take three years. In Swain County, North Carolina, I'm David Borax for Marketplace. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera, digital producer Jarrett Dang, engineers Jess and Dooler and Nick Esposito. It is the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be partly sunny, windy, and mid-50s today. Then sun all this weekend with upper 40s on Saturday and low 50s on Sunday. Right now it's 51 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.